You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, have a seat, please. And, you know, I'm always amazed as you read the Gospels, the variety of things that Jesus talked about. In fact, three of the biggest things that take up the most space on the pages in the Gospels are um, he talked repeatedly, Jesus did, about the relationship between citizens to the government and government to citizens. How do you operate in this little lower kingdom when you're really a part of the big kingdom of God? He talked about it constantly. He talked also about, um, about following him and not following him. He talked about the, the plight of the unbeliever, the justice and the judgment that was going to come someday. He talked about that all the time. And then he talked all the time about money, about finances, and just over and over and over with love and with grace, but with a real directness as well. And I marvel at the fact, if you, if you take those three things out, the gospels get very small. Like, he, he talks about those all the time. And at the same time, if you and I were sitting down and figuring out, hey, we should plant a church and let's put together a church growth strategy, the first three things you would say, whatever you do, don't talk about. Don't talk about politics, don't talk about hell, and don't talk about money. And Jesus did something very different. I, th- I think he did it out of love. Like, if you don't talk about your relationship to the government, you get largely where we are right now in America. You, you have to um, make an idol and make a god out of um, political figures in whatever office it is. Or you get people that say things like, if you don't understand how we relate, then you get, then you get people that actually think things, Christians that think things like, I only have to pray for this leader if I voted for them. I only have to pray for this man or this woman if I agree with them. And here's, you know, Jesus, you see Paul saying it, pray for people in leadership. And sometimes these are Romans, uh, Caesars, that are oppressing Christians. And he says, pray for them. You think about um, hell, if we just say, let's not talk about judgment, let's not talk about the justice of God, well, then we don't really understand the love of God because we don't understand what we've been saved from. And so there is a good, proper way to talk about these things. And then money is the third one, and Jesus talks about it all the time. In fact, one commentator says it like this. He says, money is akin to a demonic power that can mesmerize us with its attractions and claim our service. My job as a pastor, or a lot of times the term is translated shepherd, um, sometimes is to fend off wolves. And um, we, if we're not careful, we have a wolf just sitting there wanting to nip us. It's sitting in our wallets, sitting in our purses, or your, I don't have a purse, your purses, ladies, um, that is just there, ready. And you know this, you know the pull, even if you're not a Christian, you can know the pull that money can have on us. And so today, what I want to do is I want to preach like Christ does. I want to preach the freedom that we can have from this. If you're not a Christian even, you, you know the trap that we can get into of I'm on this rung and if I just got a little bit more, if I just got that promotion, if I, my, the stock market just did what I need it to do and it's just a little bit more and then as soon as you get to that rung and it gave you this promise that you'd be fulfilled, all of a sudden you're looking up at the next one going, well that rung looks pretty great too. It doesn't fulfill but it lures us in and keeps making us think that it did and Jesus is going to talk about the freedom that we can have. In fact, Oftentimes when you hear people teach in church, it becomes about fundraising. It is not. When I see Jesus talk about money, this is something we gotta talk about right right off the bat. When Jesus talks about money, he doesn't talk about fundraising. He talks about faithfulness and freedom. 
is not fundraising. It is faithfulness and freedom. It's how do you equip the people of God if there is this wolf that can get them, if there is this temptation of uh, money in our lives, of possessions in our lives that can lure us away from the best thing in the world, that can lure us away from what we need in Christ Jesus, what he fulfills. Um, If that is the case, how do we faithfully live in that? How do we find freedom in that? Because it seems like the only options we have are I either just sort of give into it or, I don't know, I just try to give my money away and then maybe I'll assuage enough of my guilt and I'll feel better. That's not the strategy Jesus has either. He's got a beautiful plan of freedom. So that's what I want to share with you here today. And I'll show you Luke chapter 16. He starts in verse one. It says, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Now in this text, we're going to see three people. They're all men, Jesus, a rich man, and a manager. One of the things you'll notice, you can see it right here. See, Jesus is italicized. If you're following along, the Bible says he, but when you read it, you start to go, and he did this and him and his and all that. There's a few instances where I just took out the he or him and I wrote in the manager, the rich man, or Jesus just for ease. But when you see it italicized, that's why. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a, uh, a manager. It's uh, oikonomos. It is house, oikos, and nomos law. He is the one for the, on behalf of the rich man that oversees the rules or laws or customs of the oikos, the house. So it is the rich man leaves, and in his stead, he leaves a manager there. You might know the story of, um, in the Old Testament, Joseph, that is the Israelite sold into slavery, and he gets put in um, the house of uh, the chief of the guard to Pharaoh Potiphar. And what happens is, uh, well, I'll read it to you. The Lord was with Joseph as a slave, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master, Potiphar. His master saw the Lord was with him, was with Joseph, and the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and, made, and um, Potiphar made Joseph overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left, Potiphar left all he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Joseph was a man of integrity, and Potiphar, even though Potiphar's Egyptian, he's an Israelite, he's looking and going, wow, this guy is a man of integrity. This is a man that is trustworthy. And so he goes from slave to being the one who runs his entire house. That's kind of the picture of what Jesus is talking about here in the New Testament. You got the rich man, and then you've got this manager that's running everything. And as the manager's running everything, like he basically hired out the stuff he didn't want to do. He staffed it out, okay? And, and as, he, um, as he does that, you can see now, he, the rich man is now freed from having to get involved in all the little details, which can be a great thing, unless you don't manage it well, unless you don't oversee them well, unless there's no supervision because that manager could easily be careless, lazy, or in this case, dishonest. Jesus said there's a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to the rich man that the manager was wasting the rich man's possessions. And the rich man called the manager and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? 
Turn in the account of your management. That's important. Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. You're fired, but I need you to go out. I don't know anything what's going on. You've been running it, so you need to go out and you need to get all the paperwork and get everything and bring it in to me. So turn in your account. And look what the manager's response is. Verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since I'm getting fired, since my master is taking the management away from me? And then he gives some very telling comments about his own character. I am not strong enough to dig and I am too ashamed to beg. I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. This is about character. So this probably isn't um, he's elderly and he's not able to dig. This is more of an excuse. I've gotten lazy. I've found a way to work the system where I don't have to work very hard. And oh, I could go out and get some manual labor, but that would require a whole lot of effort to be put into it in order to get to that point. So what's my other option? Oh, I could go beg on the streets for money. And he just says, I'm ashamed to beg. He's too proud to go beg on the streets. This is about his character. He has become this prideful, lazy wimp. That's what he's trying to describe to them here. And, and here's one of the principles he's trying to get across that we've got to agree on, okay? Um, that money that is either easily or unethically obtained can trap us in laziness. Money that we get unethically or money that we get real easily can trap us in laziness. That's kind of what's happening here. He's figured out a way to just get a little bit from his master, just a little bit of unethical, be, be a little unethical. And then all of a sudden he realizes, oh, I didn't have to work that hard and I got this and there's a good chance I'm not going to get caught. I could just do that a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And it becomes this trap. It's been fascinating to watch. Um, it's been fascinating to watch like if, if I'm getting money for nothing, then um, to all of a sudden say, now I'm going to start working for that. Like that's a big obstacle to overcome. That's a lot to do. And this guy has just learned how to sort of be lazy. This is why I'm, I'm just gonna tell you personally, I lament the way that we um, as, a, as a nation on a secular level care for the poor in our nation. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I'm sure there are programs that are very good and very helpful and people that have received something from our government and have gotten back on their feet as a result. I'm sure that's out there. But largely, the logic behind what's happening is people don't have money. If we give them money, we're doing one of two things. We're either just gonna have to keep doing it forever or we're somehow assuming that they're gonna get this money for free and then think, you know what? I should work for this. Like, this happened, this happened to so many of you all during COVID um, with adult children that were working and then lost their job or quit or something during COVID. I bet you I, bet you I had two dozen conversations with adults at Rockland about this with adult kids that were working and then COVID hit and they started receiving money from the government and then they started to go, well, I don't have to work and I'm making maybe a little less or about as much or maybe even just a little bit more to not work as opposed to work. And it was fascinating to me to, I, I just started, some of you are here, I started just messing with people because I started asking, they were saying like, I'm telling my kid, go work. And they're going, why? And I said, great, how did you answer that one? Think about it. Like, how would, how would, you, how would you do that? Like, I'm getting paid basically the same to not work. So what's your argument that I need to go back to work? Well, it's just the right thing to do or you should do it or, you know, like it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do because if you start getting, this is for any of us, you start getting stuff for free, it's easier to just go, I'll just take the free stuff. 
It's just easier rather than thinking like somehow it's gonna spur me out of this. I knew a guy, he was a multimillionaire. He owned a, or was a like CEO, I guess, of an oil and gas firm in Texas. One of those, there's like a million little firms. He was one of them. Probably my age, this was years ago. He's probably my age now, so like mid 40s and he could have retired no problem. Multimillionaire in, uh, in his day. And he found, he figured out that um, because he sort of got asked to leave and sort of left and so left and he got a huge severance and all that. <clears throat> um, he figured if I stop working, I'm going to get so lazy. So you know what he did? He had kids at home too, by the way. So you know what he did? He got another job. And I said, I remember talking to him and I said, oh, well, what are you doing? And this multimillionaire who could be retired if he wanted to, or um, as he was looking to go get back in oil and gas, um, was working at Wendy's. He would tell his wife, bring the kids and I will serve you at Wendy's. Literally leave our multimillion dollar home, which they had, get in the Lexus, drive to Wendy's and watch dad serve you from the counter. And he said, I wanted to teach my kids this value of hard work. It's one of those things, I'm just telling you, as soon as, and you know this, as soon as we start to sort of slip a little bit and just get a little bit lazy, it's easy to just go, how can I put in the least amount of effort and still gain things? And so I, I look at this guy and I go, I get it. Like I get why he might've just taken a little bit here and a little bit here and then just figured out how to work the system. And so he hatches this plan. Um, this comes from when he said, turn in your account. The rich man said, turn in the account of your management. He hatches this plan. In verse four, it says, I, that's the manager, have decided what to do. Or it literally says, I have decided what I will do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. He just used I or me four different times. This was about him and his life and his plans. He says, I'm going to go hatch this scheme. So when I get fired, I've got people that are indebted to me. Look at what he does. Verse five. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil which to give you, I tried to do the best I could with a conversion. A hundred measures of oil is about uh, 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot. Um, it's about equivalent to three years of wages for a day laborer in that day. So I, I'm behind three years of all my money to your master, is what he says. And he said, take your bill, sit down, and write 50. Oh, now I'm only a year and a half. Like, you see, you see what he just did? And then the next one, then he said to the other, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. This is about a thousand bushels, and something gets close to about 30 tons of wheat. Or about, for a day, again, the equivalent of a day laborer, about 10 years wages is what he owes. And he said, take your bill and write 80. He just gave him a couple years of his life back. So what's happening? Um, let me just say one thing in case you read a study Bible that may say this, and I don't think this is the best way to take it. Some think that um, whatever he owed interest was wild. You could just kind of charge whatever, and if someone agreed to it, then that was fine. And some think that he was charged, overcharged so much that this guy had a change of heart and went back and said, oh, we've overcharged you. I shouldn't charge you that much, and so brought it down to a reasonable amount. I don't think that's the best way to understand what's happening. He gave one of them 50%, one of them 20% off. 
Um, you'll notice he's not praised. In a minute, he does get some praise, but it's not for his character. He's been saying, I, 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 me, me, me. It's been all about him. He is working the system here to try and get something. The better way to see it is that he is trying to make friends. That's what he said when he started it. Make friends with all these people in the form of money. What is one of the ways money can enslave us? When we are indebted to other people, it has power, doesn't it? I mean, this is a guy going and saying, I am going to basically give you a lot of money and give you life back. So you are going to walk around, wink, wink, indebted to me. Now, the next part gets very confusing because I would think the master would go, what? And instead, it says, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager. Isn't that odd? He commended him, and then what does he call him? The dishonest manager. Way to go, dishonest person. The, manager commend, uh, the master commanded the dishonest, commend, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. About to be a whole lot of talk about shrewdness. Let me explain what it means. Shrewdness, you can kind of think of wisdom, it's almost parallel, um, but being shrewd is not necessarily in and of itself good or bad. In fact, um, Jesus once told his disciples, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. So those two things, shrewd and pure, shrewd and innocent is essentially what he's saying. Walk as wise as you can possibly walk and be innocent as a dove. Um, <clears throat> The, other, the reference, be shrewd as a snake. In Genesis 3.1, you know who was very shrewd? It says the serpent, the snake, Satan, was more shrewd, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So what Jesus is saying is the people of the world, they get the shrewdness thing, but Christians, we have the innocence thing as well. I'll show you more of this in a second. He says, I tell you, verse nine, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. The Greek word is mammon. If you've ever heard that in the King James, wonder where it comes from. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So here's what he just said. He said, in the world, they know how to be shrewd based on what they see as eternal, which is this world. And what he's saying is, Christians, you act differently. You see it differently. You act shrewdly in light of your eternal dwellings. You act shrewdly in light of the fact that this world is not your home, that there's more to it than this, that there's a God in heaven that rules and reigns over you. You're thinking of eternity is what he's saying. And so, uh, you know, just some examples would be, you know, don't, we don't act deceitfully with money. We don't manipulate. We don't give money in order to try and get an audience with somebody later. We don't give, um, we, we don't justify unethical business dealings or cheating on taxes going, well, now I can give more to charity. Like we, to justify it like that, that's lo- we've lost the innocence of it then. If we think in light of eternity, we remember God and who he is, we'd say, I can be shrewd, but I've also got some boundaries that others don't because I'm a Christian. Or I just said it like this. I said, we spend in light of our eternity. If this is all there is in someone's mind, You should spend it all and get every little ounce you can out of life. But Christians, we look and we go, this this stuff, and he's going to talk about it in a minute, we can't serve both God and money. It can have a hold on us. And we're living for the things of eternity, not the things of this world. 
So he goes back to the parable. Verse 10, one who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Then if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? One commentator summed it up like this. The possessions, property, and wealth that belong to disciples in this age is not their own. Disciples are like the managers to whom God grants gifts, and such gifts are to be used responsibly and for God's sake. Then he's going to give the point of the entire parable. And I told you the point of this is about freedom. And here's what he's going to say. No servant can serve two masters, for he either will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Get the picture that he's saying. He's saying there's this manager here who wants money and he's serving money, but he's got the master he's supposed to serve. And he says, you can't. You got At some point, you've got to pick one. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's why, as a Christian pastor, that's why we're talking about this, is because we can become people that start being servants of the very blessings that God has given us. We can become servants of the money that we have, servants of the things that we have. In fact, it comes out in two different ways. It comes out when we lack money or it comes out when we have too much money. We can become enslaved to it. This word is doulos and it's being enslaved to money. So when we lack money, think about this. Are you in debt? Like, I, like, we don't have a house, so we don't even have a house. Well, we've got a house. We, we have the parsonage, uh, but we don't have a house payment, I should say. Um, but we have no debt, and it is glorious. I gotta tell you. Like, I've had debt before, and what I found was every single time, every decision we make, every single time, you go out to dinner, you get the credit card, you hand it to them, and you're going, okay, that's just another 40 bucks I can't use to pay off the debt that's like weighing back here in my mind. It can constantly be on your mind. Think about um, if we, not just if you lack it, but if just the threat of lacking it, like picture upper management all getting together and, uh, and going, hey, you know what? I think we're gonna need to do some layoffs around here. What is the next thing that somebody says? Keep it quiet. Do not let it out of this room until we've decided exactly what's gonna happen so we can have a communication plan. Why? Because just somebody hearing that I might not have this income anymore, no matter how far along the process or how, how much of sort of a brainstorm it is, that can start to drive us. We can go back to this like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? And they know panic can ensue. By the way, Dave Ramsey always said this. I think, he, I think it's still his advice is um, if you have debt, like I so desperately want you to know the freedom of just getting rid of it. Um, he, conventional wisdom would say pay off the thing. If you have multiple lines of debt, pay off the thing with the highest interest. He actually says something different. And a lot of financial counselors will as well. Pay off the one that is easiest for you to pay off. Even if it's not the highest interest, pay off the one that's easiest for you to pay off. And then when you get that paid off, the way we are wired psychologically is you go, we can do this. And it just becomes this domino effect of just more and more and more. And you can start to pay it off. And I got to tell you, I desperately want you to have the freedom of saying, I'm getting out of debt. I've had, I've had um, um, I say kids that have graduated from college that come out with a lot of debt. And I go, man, first thing, get out of that. Live, go eat ramen noodles, three meals a day if that's what you have to do, and go and get out of that. And you will have this joy and this freedom of being out of it. 
But also, if we have a lot, we can become enslaved to it as well. Like, <clears throat> I had, for the longest time, I had, I had my, um, my iPhone, I think it was a 7, iPhone 7. And this was like a few years ago, all right? And I think they're now to the 14, something like that. And Is that right? I think that's about right. And I remember I'm sitting here rocking my iPhone 7, and everybody else is on like the 11. And um, I was perfectly content with whatever, a 6 or 7, whatever I had. I mean, the battery life was like 20 minutes, I think, and then it was dead. But I was perfectly content with what I had. And then I started watching commercials. And then I met somebody that had one that was like, a, had like nine lenses on the back, and it was like a microwave, like it did all these fancy things. And all of a sudden I started going, well, mine's not very good. And so then all of a sudden I wanted the bigger one, I wanted the better one. And so then it was like, oh, I, I have, before I was perfectly content, but now I'm like, oh, this one's not so good because I've got a new standard now. And so I would look and go, I wanna have the 10 or whatever it was then. And you look at this, and then your mind starts going, I need that, I need that, I need that. And you're just operating like at a deficit. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, I I did get it, and all you did was kind of come back up to normal, and it's just captivating it to us. We've got to have the newest. We've got to have the best. Advertisers and marketers know this about us, by the way. It can be enslaving to us. I've got to have the next best thing, but we keep buying the lie of if I just get the next thing, then I'll be done. I remember my first car that I got was a 1980, I think, five Ford Tempo. Not to brag, but this was, it was pretty legendary. It was awesome. And I, this is, I was, somehow this girl dated me while I had that, and then she ended up with me. So go figure. Um, so I had this 80-something Ford Tempo, and this is in Texas, and there was no air conditioning, which is great for date night, by the way. No air conditioning. Um, and the window, I think I told you, the windows didn't work. And so you're just like driving around a greenhouse all the time in Texas. And so it did work where I could push the window, I could push the whatever, the, the automatic window down, but I'd have to reach over and slide the window down manually with my hand. And then, but that one worked and then that one went out. And so we're uh, like on a date and I'm like, you're gonna have to push the thing and then slide it, which was really awesome and really romantic. And then, oh, the muffler fell off. That was great too. And so we would like, I literally like take her out on dates and we would go and like, you gotta do the thing and push, I'm driving and I have to kind of drive with my knee and push that and slide it down, you know, and it's 100 degrees and we're baking and it's mom, like as we're driving off because it's so loud. And I have to tell you, it was so great that my first car was not good. Because I, I know me enough to know that if I had gone out and if my parents had got me some really, really sweet ride for my very first car, all I would do is the next one has to be even better. The next one has to be even better. The next one has to be even better. My daughter just got her first car, which is my wife's hand-me-down. This, this is a minivan with every 18-year-old loves minivans with <laughs> 200,000 miles on it and hail damage, good Colorado hail damage. And we were like, here's your car. And to her credit, she's like, awesome. Like she loves it. She's just glad to have a car, which if she was like, I don't want that car, we'd be like, well, you can go get your own car then. We'll go ahead and sell this one. It's good actually. Like for me, anyway, I know I could, it could set the bar too high and I just have to have more and have to have more and have to have more. And I'm glad I had my little hoopty there with the Ford Tempo of my first one because every car after that is amazing. It can trap us. 
You know, God has given us a way. He knows our money can enslave us so many different ways. And I, and you, I think you know this. I don't feel like I have to sell you on it or anything. Um, but I, can I, I'm just going to give you a couple real practical things. And I want to share something that I learned when I was younger that um, just completely changed my heart. And I, I, I want you to try and see. I want to try and communicate that to you. A bunch of different things about there, there's practical things we can do that will either move us into more slavery to money or can free us from it. And so a very simple one I mentioned already, get out of debt. If you have debt, get out of debt. And if you're someone like when I've had it, I've just tried to ignore it and pretend it's not there, man, jump in with both feet, attack it head on. You'll feel empowered and you will feel so great as you start to see that paid off and paid off and paid off. Um, you know, I, I, um, some of you do this all the time, I'm sure, but there is just something wonderful about just going out to lunch with somebody and just picking up the tab. Not because I want something from you, not because I'm trying to be like the manager and I'm trying to say, you owe me now, but just to go, I, I'm just gonna, I just wanted to spend time, I'm just gonna buy you lunch. You'd be amazed what that starts to do to your heart to unhook any grasp that money may have on us. I, I talked about this a couple years ago and a couple people did it, so I'm gonna mention it again. Um, drive down, go get some cash, drive down to Denver Seminary and go find a couple poor seminary students that are wanting to graduate from there and go change the world and walk up to them and go, oh, you're in seminary, what are you gonna do? Have a conversation and give them a couple hundred bucks and say, God bless you. Don't even tell them your name. Just say, God bless you. You'll make their day, I promise. And what you'll find is you'll start to go, I get to be a part of this person's ministry in a small way for the rest of their life. You know, I think um, a lot of times some of the ways we try to do this is I'm just gonna go and give to the homeless. And I remind you of what we said earlier that sometimes when you just give like that, it can just enable poverty. And, but that's why we partner with, like go, sponsor one of the girls in Tanzania. Go down and give money to Main Street or Loaves and Fishes. There's tons of different places you can go and you can just start to give and you can invest in that way and you start to see your heart start to move there as well. And then all of a sudden what happens is you start to hear about like Main Street ministry and people coming to faith and you can go, I got to be a part of that. Like that kingdom stuff that was happening, I got to be a part of it. Let me give you a realization that I had probably 20 years ago, something like that, in a different church, but I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna translate it to, to Rockland here. I was sitting in that church. I knew full well nobody had to convince me that money could have a hold on you. No problem. That, that's the world we live in. That's how we're wired. It can, we can become enslaved to it. And then to go, so what is the remedy? Just sort of get rid of a bunch and maybe I'll drop my guilt a little. You know, I, don't, I don't know. I didn't know what to do. At the time, I wasn't giving to the local church where I was a member at all. And here's what came to mind for me. It was actually during a pastor, I could tell you where I was sitting in that church, Park City's Baptist Church, as he was giving this. I don't know why I was by myself. Nikki wasn't with me. I don't know why. But I remember sitting there by myself, and the pastor got up, and I thought, oh, the money thing. And then I just sort of tuned out. And then I don't know if he said stuff that triggered me or the Holy Spirit was just working in spite of my hard heart or whatever it was. But here's what came to mind for me. When you think about the local church, the church of Jesus Christ, here's something to know. The church stewards God's money to enhance the church and advance the kingdom. The church stewards God's money to enhance the church and advance the kingdom. God has not just said, you're going to be enslaved to money if you're not careful, so don't be enslaved. He says there are things you can do, practical steps you can take. And in that moment, I fell in love with this idea of um, financially investing in the local church where I was a member. Let me just tell you, that. listen to how brilliant God is. The church of Jesus Christ is the only place where the qualification to be a leader is godly character. 
It's not, we need a lawyer, we need an accountant. Well, let's get some people that are rich so if we don't make budget, we can go, hey, can you write a check for a little bit? That's not how it works. The people that are called to steward God's resources as we as a body pool our resources together, their, their qualification is godliness and right character. And the only thought that they are to have is that the kingdom of God would advance in its fullness on earth in the time in, where, in which we find ourselves. So godly leaders, uh, uh, um, um, what am I trying to say? Character is the primary thing and their only motive is to advance the kingdom of God on earth. And so I think about it like this. This, this is what came to me. I'm gonna translate it to Rockland, but I'm gonna tell you what came to me in that moment as I was sitting there ignoring the pastor's sermon. Don't you do that, but I was doing it. I just started thinking, because I wasn't giving at all, and I thought, when I give to this particular church where I was, when I give, I don't know if I'm the guy that can go down and like sit with children and teach them and all that kind of stuff, but when I give, part of what I give gets to go advance the kingdom to that age. And I know some people are going, boy, I don't want to work teenagers, God bless them, I want them to know the gospel, but I ain't going to go spend time with them. When we give portion of that goes to advance the kingdom with them. Like think about where else could our giving have such a ripple effect to help support worshiping every single week with communion, with preaching and staff, worshiping through music or um, contributing. Then I went, just a portion of what I do, I'm taking it to Rockland here, goes to, um, goes to minister like mops, mothers of preschoolers. We house them here. We, we, we host them here. And so when we give, that's a part of what gets to happen. We get to be a part of what happens with Alcoholics Anonymous because we have them on our campus as well. And when we give together, think about the gospel impact that we get to have. Community Bible study that we host here, we get to be a part of that. We have ministry outreach. We reach out to the Ralston teachers, to families in need, to Mean Street, Clear Creek Rock House. We have Stevens Ministry. We have quilters and prayer shawls. And the outreach team has some money that if there's just a need in the community, people can come and they can dole it out as they uh, sense God leading them. And when I'm going, when I give, I get to be a part. Oh my goodness. And the list just starts getting longer and longer and longer. Prayer cards, Operation Christmas Child. We pay to ship some of the stuff. We have, uh, we have a ministry over in the Netherlands that a portion of what we give goes there as well. We have events that bring in the community and equip people. I mean, think about this for a minute. Like, you might be able to go, you might be able to even like designate to a certain one, but like well, the thing that hit me that day was when I give, it goes to all that. Like I get to be a part of the kingdom advancement in all those different areas and the investment I make is better than my, you know, seven or 8% that you might get in the stock market or whatever it is. This is something that is eternal. That struck me that day. The other thing that struck me is oftentimes when we think of money, we don't really want money, we want what money provides. Security doesn't really provide security. Our security is in Christ and in Christ alone. Money is a poor substitute for that. Or pleasure or joy, money doesn't really provide that. That's fleeting. Our pleasure and joy is found only in him. Or sometimes money is about our status. You are a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no greater status that you could have what I'm desperate for you and I'm desperate for me and my family to know today. I'm desperate for us to not 
be a slave to money, but have the freedom that Christ wants us to have.